If you've been a part of our church for a while, you know that typically we pick a book of the Bible and we preach through whole books around here. Uh, We love to do that. We like the authority of God's word being front and center. And uh, we also like the reality that when you preach through a book of the Bible, you can't be a pastor that cherry picks your passages. You have to preach the stuff that you don't wanna say and that people don't wanna hear. And that's a good thing, right? It is important though, in moments in our church, to preach through some things that relate to topics that are at the heart of what it means to be faithful missionaries in our culture. If we're gonna follow Jesus on mission, and if we're gonna see darkness push back inside of our own lives, which is part of the work of the gospel, and darkness push back in our city, which is the other work of the gospel, then there's moments where we've gotta pause and we've gotta ask some really hard questions. What we're starting today is a journey called American Gods. And and I call it a journey because for the next several weeks, we're gonna be exploring, we're gonna be exploring this paradoxical reality that though the West is becoming more secular, though there's more and more people that see themselves as nuns, meaning they have no religious affiliation, Though what's happening at Frontline Church with a lot of young people worshiping Jesus is really rare and young people are leaving the church in the West in droves, though that's happening, it's not really that Americans are becoming less religious. It's just that our pantheon of gods is shifting. It's not that we're not worshiping. It's that the objects of our worship are more and more things that we take for granted on a daily basis. So over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at some gods. These are gods that people worship. These are gods that we build temples to. These are gods that have prophets and priests and oracles. These are gods that demand sacrifices. And these are gods that if you don't have a sense of sobriety about you, they're gods that make claims that we buy into on a daily basis. So as we kick this thing off, I want to read you one verse out of the book of Acts that kind of gives you a bit of context that at first seems like it has nothing to do with people living in Oklahoma, but on second glance, it has everything to do with people living in Oklahoma. It's Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Here's what it says. Now, when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, so he's on a layover on a missionary journey. He's in the city of Athens. Here's what it says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul's on a layover. He's walking the great city of Athens. And as he walks through Athens, he sees the multitude of idols and temples and shrines in their context. Petronius wrote once that it's easier to find a God than a man in the city of Athens in this cultural moment. It was a city full of gods. It was a city that was built in worship to the pantheon of gods. There was Aphrodite, the goddess of love and her temple. There was Athena, the goddess of wisdom and her temple. There was Ares, the god of war. Temples to Artemis and Roma and many other temples and countless shrines in the city of Athens. And as Paul walked through that city and he saw the religiosity focused on idols that were made with human hands, scripture tells us that inside of him, his soul, his spirit, his heart gets churned up and it's provoked within him. Now, at first glance, you may be thinking, well, why is this spirit provoked? Is he just projecting his Jewish monotheism in some cultural superiority way to a city that just has a different culture? 
And what I want you to see over the next few weeks is that this is not Paul as a Jewish man practicing sort of an ethnocentric judgmentalism as it relates to Athens. This is Paul as a follower of Jesus recognizing that the worship of idols demands a really high price from the people that worship. See, what we're going to find over the next few weeks is that false gods tell beautiful lies. They tell really beautiful lies. They tell you things that you really want to hear and they promise things that you really need and they speak to the deepest desires of your flesh and of your soul, but the promises that they make, they never come through on. False gods tell you big things, but they don't deliver the big things that they promise. False gods promise freedom. They promise freedom. And instead of delivering freedom, what they do over time is they add chain after chain to our lives. They leave us us enslaved and bound up. False gods always demand sacrifices. They tell you, they tell you that if you'll just do a couple of things in your allegiance to that God and the goals that that God will get you, then you'll find more joy and more beauty and more freedom. But the sacrifices, get me, the sacrifices become increasingly great until finally the gods themselves gobble you up and you become their sacrifice. Now, at first glance, this may seem like it has nothing to do with Oklahoma. This is the Bible Belt. We have people that were raised in church, that fell away from church, but they don't create gods with their hands for the most part in our city. Um, This is not a context in a culture like India where there are 200 million public gods. Uh, I remember as a kid living in India for about nine to nine, 10 months And just walking through India, and uh, for a Westerner, India is a bit like a drug that you either love and have to get more of, or it's a drug that you OD on and never want to go back. Um, For me, India has always been like a drug I want more of. I just love India. I love the people. I love the culture. I love the customs. I love the food. Everything in India is cranked up to 13, right? It's the best smells at the same time, right alongside the worst smells, the most beautiful things with the most horrible things. India just overwhelms you. And by far, one of the most overwhelming things about India is that there are literally, there are literally temples everywhere. There's holy men everywhere. There's shrines everywhere. And it doesn't really look like that here, does it? There's a few churches and there's people that are atheists and there's people that are agnostic. There's people that are former Christians that walked away because they got hurt in church, but it doesn't look like we've got a lot of gods. And yet here's the argument for the next few weeks. We have way more in common with India than what you first might imagine. We look way more like Athens And yet the gods that we worship, the gods that want your allegiance in some ways are even more dangerous because their temples are hidden. They're they're not gods that are public gods. They're gods that are personal, private. They're secret gods. Whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you consider yourself spiritual or materialistic, whether you're a Southern Baptist or a Muslim, the reality is Right here in our city, we are surrounded by a pantheon of gods. And the question for human beings, as we're going to see today and over the next four or five weeks, the question for human beings is not, will you worship something or someone? The question is, who will you worship? We are hardwired for worship. 
What I want you to see over the next couple of weeks is that the stakes couldn't be higher when it comes to what you will worship. The stakes couldn't be higher because what you worship ultimately will control you. What you worship ultimately will form you and create you. We don't want to be a group of Christians that are naive about the reality of worship. I remember as a kid living upstairs from a Hindu family in India, great family. They had kids about my age, played with them. They were fascinating and beautiful, wonderful people. And I remember us sharing the gospel of Jesus with them. And I remember the day that they took me down into their living room where they had a cabinet full of various household deities. These were idols representing the gods that they worshiped. And in a move that they thought was really generous and really beautiful, they took a cross and they placed it among the other gods. They said, hey, Jesus sounds great. Jesus sounds useful. Jesus seems like he will be a benefit to me. I'll add Jesus to the other gods that I pray to and sacrifice to. Now, what I want you to get is that that's the temptation for every single person in this room. The temptation is that we add Jesus to the other gods that are vying for our attention, that we give Jesus joint custody with the other gods that we go to for identity and meaning, for worship and for joy. See, I think that what's really happening in our particular cultural moment is that we forgot what a God really is. We forgot that a God is that which controls you. A God is that which has override power in your life. A God is that thing that will demand your default decision to go in the direction of that God. God is what gives you your core identity. When you try to wrestle with meaning and who you are as a person and what makes your life meaningful and beautiful, what gives you value, a God is that thing that says, I am the one that gives you your name. A God is that thing which you could never live without. A God is that which gives you your deepest comfort and security. See, there's objections in the room. I can almost hear them. It's like, hey man, that's fine. That's cool. But I'm not a pagan. I don't worship a lot of gods. Or hey, uh, I attend church sometimes, but I'm not a fanatic. I'm not that crazy about any God. I just, sort of, I just sort of am trying to live life and carve out meaning. I'm just trying to figure out work and money and sex and relationship. I don't really worship a lot of gods. And what I want you to see for the next few weeks is that you may not admit that you worship multiple gods, but all of us, all of us are so hardwired for worship that we can't help it. Tim Keller puts it like this. Everyone looks to something for their meaning in life. And whatever that is becomes their supreme love. Love is a big idea as we talk about worship. Supreme love. They may be living for their career or for a political cause or for a particular circle of friends or colleagues or for their family. But whatever is the source of your meaning, Whatever is the source of your satisfaction in life is what you are worshiping, though you may not acknowledge it as such. And if you don't want to take the word from a Christian teacher like Keller, uh, let's go to that great secular prophet, David Foster Wallace. Brilliant writer, tragically took his life, uh, but he nails worship. Here's what he wrote. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. 
The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you're always going to feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. You'll need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect as as being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on. See, friends, the power of the gods is not whether or not they're real gods or not. The power in the gods, the reason as we talk about this, we're on really ancient and really solemn ground is that all gods will demand your allegiance and your very blood in your worship of them. Uh, Years ago, I had the blessing of being on a medical mission in uh, the nation of Nepal. And it was during one of the highest Hindu festivals of the year, a festival where they make a lot of sacrifices to Kali. And uh, in, the, in the streets of Kathmandu, there were literally animals being sacrificed everywhere, chicken and goats and oxen. And blood literally was covering the streets. You, you were walking, splashing in blood. Entrails from the animals were being hung for blessing over motorbikes and over trucks and over all kinds of buses in the city. It was just a really gory, bloody moment in their city. But what I want you to see is that the gods that are vying for your attention, they don't want chickens. They don't want goats. They don't want oxen. The gods that are vying for your attention want you. They want your very life. They want to crush the humanity that God's given you. And they want to leave you naked, empty, and lost. Shakespeare nailed it. He said, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods. They kill us for their sport. That's right. So where did this come from? If we're going to understand this journey into the pantheon of American gods and how Jesus confronts these gods with a greater reality, if we're going to look at how the gospel actually gives you power to move from finding identity in money or family or sex or career to being rooted in the love of God, if we're going to go on this journey, we've got to ask ourselves the question, why is worship so hardwired into our souls? Why is it that human beings seem to have implanted in our DNA, the need to worship. And the answer to that is found in a compelling way in the beginning of Christian revelation. In Genesis chapter one, God tells us something about anthropology that's really important. He tells us something that makes way more sense than other stories that try to give you answers about who we are. This is, in fact, one of the reasons I follow Jesus is because a Christian anthropology makes more sense of what it means to walk out the human experience than any other narrative that exists. Here's what we see in the beginning, and this is why why worship abounds everywhere. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, then God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here's what's happening in this text. God is helping us understand something about the unique, strange experience of being human. He's taken us back to his original intent for his image bearers. And that original intent includes three things. All right, let me give them to you. What does it mean to be in the image of God? Well, there's a lot of arguments that people make that rationality is how we're in the image of God or the capacity to do good deeds is how we're in the image of God. I think what this text is saying though relates to these three. What does it mean to be an image bearer? Well, it means one, first and foremost, we were made for relationship with God. The most obvious thing that you can miss when you try to figure out what it is to be an image bearer is that the image always finds its identity in relationship to the original. What is it to be an image bearer? Well, first and foremost, it means that we were created to be in relationship with God in which he is our deepest delight. Now get this, this is so important. The gifts that God's given humanity, gifts like sex that God created, the devil didn't invent sex, God invented sex. Gifts like food and drink and music, gifts like nature. These are gifts that God gave that were not to be ultimate in our affections. God didn't create us to try to tap all of our meaning in romance or all of our meaning in recreation, or all of our meaning in our careers, he gave us those things as signposts to point back to ultimate meaning being found in relationship with him. He created us to find our identity in his love. To be in relationship with God was to have the most important being in the entire universe smiling on you. How safe can you be If the one who is the beginning and the end, the timeless one, the uncreated cause of all things, if he's for you, it means you don't have to strive. It means you don't have to try to carve a meaning for yourself. It means that you can receive the pleasure of God and you can have your loves ordered. God first and created things less than God and people more than stuff. When we love God and we have this relationship, our loves fall into order. Secondly, they were image bearers because they were made to reflect God. In that relationship, they were to be like mirrors. Imagine taking a mirror and pointing it at the sun. The mirror itself doesn't have its own light, but it reflects the light of the sun. To be an image bearer in relationship with God was to have God smiling on humanity and us reflecting God's beauty, God's justice, God's compassion on planet earth. We were created in such a way that people could look at one another and then worship not the human, but the God that created them. To know that God is just and God is merciful as they related to other image bearers who reflected his justice and his mercy. Thirdly, we were made, and this is essential to understand how worship has gone wrong. We were made to represent God. Uh, In the beginning, in the garden, we were not created for a lifetime of all-inclusive cruises, right? Uh, Work is actually in the garden. It's in the garden. Work is a part of what it means to find a meaningful life. Work is a part of reflecting God. And the work of this original couple, their work was to multiply and fill the earth as vice regents under the authority of God. 
So they were to exercise authority under his authority in a way that as they did family and as they created art and culture, as they cultivated the ground, as they cared for creation, you would see in their work the beauty and the fingerprints of the living God. Now, here's where things go terribly wrong. And this makes so much sense of what it means to be a human. In a moment of tragic irony, what human beings did in the beginning is they exchanged creator for creation. So God gave them all these gifts and we looked at God and said, hey, you know what would make these gifts better? If I can enjoy them on my own terms without you. Imagine having a really wealthy friend and that wealthy friend invites you over and you go to their lake house and it's just amazing. They've got all the things that you could never afford to buy at Whole Foods, right? Like literally, like, like they're so wealthy, they do an entire week shopping at Whole Foods. Imagine that. And you go to their house and you open up their refrigerator and it's got all kinds of great hipster stuff like LaCroix, all the LaCroix you could possibly drink. And they've got all the the wonderful foods that you can't afford. They've got everything that you would dream of. And not only that, they've got a jet ski. (sighs) Is this my own fantasy or does anybody relate to this? They've got a jet ski and they'll let you ride the jet ski. And in the midst of all those gifts and all the beauty, you're like, this is amazing. And you look at your friend that invited you over and you say to your friend, hey, you don't make all this better if I could enjoy it without you being here. Listen. 10 times more acutely, 10 times more scandalously, we took all God's gifts and we flipped him the bird and said we didn't want anything to do with him. Paul says in Romans chapter one, verse 25, that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So listen, What happens is a tragic reversal in which we start giving allegiance that only God deserves to stuff that God made. We start taking needs that only God can meet and pointing it at things like career and relationship and food and drink. We start to take that human yearning for eternity, for transcendence, for ultimate beauty, and we take it and we point it at finite things that may be good things, but we're asking them to do things that they cannot do. And in that tragic exchange, here's what happens. Our relationship with God breaks. Our reflecting of God gets obscured and we reflect all kinds of stuff that doesn't look like God. And instead of representing God in the way that we build culture and society and family, we actually represent self. So the gods now, the gods now are gods that we create with our own hands. What happens after Genesis chapter three is the language of image bearing disappears almost entirely until Jesus shows up and it's replaced by the language of idolatry. Instead of being image bearers in the way that we were made to be, we're now idolaters. We are now creators worshiping creation instead of the capital C creator. And in that idolatry, in that idolatry, we take all kinds of things that were meant to be good and we make them ultimate and we miss the point of everything. We do it with all kinds of weird stuff. Jonathan Franzen in his novel, The Corrections, has this little passage that I think paints a bit of a picture of how we worship crazy things. In this text here, um, he's writing about a bitter old man who's pushed his family away and his last God that he goes to for comfort is sex or is sleep. And here's what he says. And the alarm clock pinching off each tick. 
It was three in the morning and his mistress had abandoned him. Now when he needed her comforts more than ever, she went off whoring with younger sleepers. She had been the nook he sought, the womb. He could still find her in the afternoon or early evening, but not in a bed and not at night. And as soon as he lay down, listen to this. This is what idolatry feels like. As soon as he lay down in a bed at night, he groped in the sheets. Sometimes for a few hours, he found some bony extremity of hers to clutch. But reliably at one or two or three, she vanished beyond any pretending that she belonged to him. All kinds of things in this world can become God's. To the things that we try to cling to and the things that we try to ask for our identity to be answered in and the things that we say, comfort me because I'm terrified. The world's chaotic. I need something that won't change. Be my thing that doesn't change. And the problem is everything under the sun constantly changes. The gods don't keep their word. Or how about this example? One of the wealthiest men in the world was Adolf Merkel, German billionaire. Um, If you think you're having a bad week financially, listen to this. Uh, Between 2007 and 2008, during the recession, he lost $3.5 billion. Dang. $3.5 billion. Now, here's the other side. The brother still had $9.2 billion. He was still one of the five wealthiest men in all of Germany. It's like, hey man, I'm sorry that you lost some money, but you're going to be all right. Well, here's what happened. Shortly after, on January 5th, 2009, he stepped in front of a train to take his own life. A friend of his said this, his companies were his life. And when he was going to lose control of them, he obviously felt he would lose control of his life. That is the only way I can see it. And that's the question. At the heart of this entire sermon series is the probing question, the question we'd rather not answer. Where are you going to find your life? Where are you going to find your life? And if we could be honest, even for those of us that are followers of Jesus, our souls look more like that cabinet of gods that that Hindu family showed me than we want to admit. We go to find our life here and here and here. We go to find meaning here and here and here. And all the while, all the while, Jesus is patient and yet ruthless in his pursuit of having all of your life found in him. Where do we, where do we go to land this? What, what do we need to say? I think parting words are best found for today in 1 Corinthians 8. Paul's writing to a group of Christians that lived in a city full of idols. And they're trying to think through the ramifications of following Jesus in the midst of all the gods. Here's what Paul writes, starting in verse four. Therefore, as, the, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence but that there is no God but one. And although there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, and indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, 
and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. Over the next several weeks, we want to look at these many gods and we want to look at these many lords and we want to see how Jesus, who is the reason you exist, who is the who is the one that came to rescue and redeem, actually came, lived, died, and rose so that you and me could restore our humanity. So that we could stop being creators that go to our own creations and asking them to save us. Jesus came. Jesus came to draw the sword and kill the gods that aren't gods so that we could be free to return to what it means to be really human. In closing, here's what Jesus came to do. He came to restore our relationship with God so that we could find lasting identity in God so that you can stop asking creation to name you. In a relationship with God through the work of Jesus, what that means is career that can never tell you who you are and family that can never really tell you who you are and money that can't really answer the deeper questions and sex that certainly is not going to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul for eternity so that in Christ, through his finished work, you can actually hear the words of the only being that truly matters, the living God, look at you and say, let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you who you are. You're mine. You're loved, you're chosen, you're secure, you're safe. You can get off of the treadmill of performance. You can get off of the treadmill of competition. You can get off of the grind that's killing your soul and you can actually receive identity that frees you to breathe. In Jesus, the reflection of God is restored in people. You become what you worship. You become what you worship. What happens in a relationship with Jesus is the various Christian practices that we do alone and in community. What we do today is we celebrate the table of God as we go through this liturgy and we hear the story of God rehearsed, as we sit under the preaching of the word, as we eat the bread and drink the wine, as we pray the prayers of the people, as we go through these liturgical elements today, what we're really doing is we're worshiping Jesus so that our loves can get reordered that we might become more like Jesus. The growth that a Christian's called to in holiness is really slow and it's really difficult and it's got a lot of setbacks, but the promise guarantee of God is that growth and holiness will mean increasingly you reflect the beauty of God instead of the ugliness of your idols. Lastly, Jesus came to restore our ability to represent God as stewards in work and family and in relationship that we can stop asking things that are a means to an end to be the end. See, marriage is never meant to be the end. Did you know that? In our culture, we think marriage is the end, that if I can just get married, everything will be okay. I'll be completed. Marriage is never meant to be the end. It's a means to an end. Work is a blessing Jobs are a blessing. Career is a blessing, but it's not an end. It's never meant to be an end. Sex is a gift, but it's not an end. Vacations and food and all the things that we go to for comfort, they were never meant to be the end. What Jesus does is he brings us back into having a life that's ordered along the lines of reality so that means 
so that means can stop being ends. So that the end, which is God himself and delight in him and worship of him becomes infused into all these parts of our life. Relationships become about worship. Work becomes about worship. Not worship of God's, worship of God. Jesus wants to form us so that we could better reflect the beauty of God. So listen, here's my question to you as we close today. Uh, Before we dive into these specific gods we're gonna look at, look at how Jesus confronts these gods over the next several weeks. My question for you today is real simple, but it takes a lot of courage to answer it. My question is this, where do you find your life? Where do you find your life? Because if you're trying to find your life in something that's a created thing, you're, you're, never, you're never gonna find it there. It's gonna trick you. It's gonna juke you. About the time you think you're gonna get it, it's gonna pull the rug out from under you. Where are you going to try to find your life? If ultimate life is not found in Jesus Christ and loving him and worshiping him and obeying him and following him, then you're trying to reconcile things that are irreconcilable. Gods that we made with the God that actually made us. And those things don't go together. They don't fit. They're not congruent. (laughs) 